Hi everyone, this is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world. Communicate it. If you like American Catholic History, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about the racial integration of Catholic churches, schools, and other institutions in North Carolina. This process, which began more than a decade before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, was the life's work of Most Reverend Vincent Waters, who was Bishop of Raleigh from 1945 until his death in 1974. Bishop Waters was born and raised in Roanoke, Virginia, which is way out west in the state. He went to college at Belmont Abbey College, a good Catholic school near Charlotte, North Carolina, and went to St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, followed by the North American College in Rome. He was ordained a priest in Rome in 1931 and returned to the U.S. as a priest for the Diocese of Richmond in 1932. His life prior to his time in Rome obviously had him living in the midst of the Jim Crow South, though he didn't really come to a realization about his own blindness on race issues during this time. But his time in Rome helped him see things differently than what he'd experienced in Virginia and North Carolina. We've talked about this in a couple of previous episodes, episode 84 with Maria Edmonia Lewis, and again, episode 122 about Father Augustus Tolton. In Rome, the race Racial segregation and discrimination that was such a thing in much of America simply didn't exist. Since Rome was the universal city and home of the entire global Catholic Church, Catholics from every part of the globe went there on equal footing and studied, prayed, worshipped, and recreated side by side with no distinction or segregation. While in Rome, Vincent Waters met the cook at the Knack, who was actually a black American man. Waters was impressed by the devotion and the deep faith of this cook and his earnest desire to be a priest, but his skin color blocked the way. Struck to the heart by this and determined that skin color should be no barrier, Waters studied the history of blacks in the U.S., of slavery, and of the church's various stands against it. He also took a more keen interest in the church's role in the ongoing issues of segregation, both the fight against segregation and the places where the church was sadly involved in perpetuating racial segregation. 
By the time he returned to the U.S. in 1932, he was fairly well committed to doing what he could to uproot the scourge of segregation and racism, to furthering evangelization among blacks, and healing the rifts of racial animus that existed in so many minds and hearts. He began as a parochial vicar, what we used to call curates, in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was then moved to Richmond, where he was stationed at Sacred Heart Cathedral and made the chancellor of the diocese of Richmond. Throughout his time in the Diocese of Richmond, he was involved in evangelistic outreach to the black community and in supporting the black Catholics of the diocese. In March 1945, Father Vincent Waters was named the third bishop of the Diocese of Raleigh, and this was where he was able to chart his own path on racial integration and evangelization. The situation he was walking into in Raleigh was a challenging one. The Diocese of Raleigh encompassed the whole of the state of North Carolina. North Carolina at the time had the lowest per capita number of Catholics in the country. Out of a population of 3,484,092, there were only 12,922 Catholics. That's only about 0.4% of North Carolinians who were Catholic. And among those Catholics, only 1,834, or 14%, were black. Making life difficult for anyone who wanted to improve race relations was Jim Crow. No, no relation of mine. Jim Crow laws were very much in effect in North Carolina at the time. Everything was segregated. Lunch counters, bus seating, water fountains, schools, and, sadly, churches, including Catholic churches. Bishop Waters' two predecessors in Raleigh had made attempts to reach out to the black community, and their attempts generally included building separate schools and churches for them. One of these separate churches, St. Benedict the Moor in the town of Newton Grove, was literally on the same property as the town's white church, Holy Redeemer. But whereas Holy Redeemer and all other white churches in the diocese were territorial parishes— that is, they were the official parish church for all the souls in a specific geographical territory, the black churches were all personal parishes. That is, they were established to cater to a certain category of people. An example of a personal parish nowadays would be the parishes staffed by the Fraternity of St. Peter or the Institute of Christ the King, parishes established to provide sacraments according to the Missal of 1962. And that's an interesting parallel case because the point of personal parishes can be either to serve in a positive manner a group of Catholics who are not being cared for as they need to be in the regular parishes, or it can be a place where the diocese seeks to sort of just hide away the difficult or otherwise undesirable Catholics who have some common hang-up. Or it could be both at the same time, depending on your perspective. That is true. Bishop Waters worked along similar lines in the first few years of his episcopacy, building a few hospitals, schools, and social halls exclusively for the black Catholic community. He also ended segregation within Catholic societies and sodalities and founded a diocesan newspaper to help get out the word of the coming changes. In 1947, he even accepted three black men for seminary studies. Two of them would be ordained in the 1950s. At the beginning of the 1950s, he hardened against all segregation within the church and stopped accepting compromises and half measures. He had come to see segregation as an evil to be ended. In 1951, he wrote a strongly worded pastoral letter, which he had read out from the pulpit at every church in the diocese. In it, he wrote, 
There is no segregation of races to be tolerated in any Catholic church in the Diocese of Raleigh. Satan uses traditional hatreds of nations, of races, of classes, of minorities, of majorities, of localities, of material possessions or the need of them to foment his divisions among men. Opposed to this confusion and hatred and division is the church Christ founded, one mystical body. In that one body, all the members, no matter of what race, what nation, what qualities of body or of mind, or with how many or how few possessions, all are in one communion if they belong to that one church. Anything to the contrary is heresy. So racism was heresy, and any actions committed according to it were thereby condemned. But with this letter, he really gave the responsibility of ending the segregation of congregations to the pastors. He didn't put any metrics or enforcement mechanisms in place. Pastors were free to choose how to implement the intention of the letter, if at all. Some pastors may have agreed with the bishop, but lacked the stomach for the fight. Others likely just opposed his plan. There was some progress but not enough. One journalist visited St. Benedict Parish in Greensboro. Now, that's not to be confused with St. Benedict at Newton Grove, the black parish we mentioned before. At St. Benedict, he did note greater involvement of black parishioners, but this was still the exception rather than the rule. Bishop Waters took a more active approach in April 1953. He wrote another pastoral letter. This time he left no wiggle room. Segregation of congregations must be ended. He wrote, Every human being has a right to worship God together with every other member of the human family in the one unbloody sacrifice which God himself instituted to perpetuate his death on the cross. A church not uniting all races and peoples in one body could not be Christ's mystical body. A church not united like parts of a body is not God's church, his mystical body. To begin implementation of this new directive, he singled out the two Catholic churches in Newton Grove, Holy Redeemer and St. Benedict. He wrote a letter to Father Sullivan, who was actually pastor of both churches, ordering him to integrate the two congregations in Holy Redeemer by May 31st. Father Sullivan sat on the letter for two weeks before reading it to his parishioners. He was so concerned about the backlash from the parishioners of both churches. And once the bishop's intentions were known, the backlash came. Many white parishioners signed onto a letter demanding the bishop rescind his order, complaining that the move was contrary to Southern custom, that such a move would cause them problems with their Protestant spouses, that their Protestant neighbors and friends would think less of the Catholics, and other such objections. Objections also came from parishioners of St. Benedict. One of their big complaints was that they didn't necessarily want to leave St. Benedict. They complained that Bishop Waters didn't consult with them about whether they wanted to be forced into Holy Redeemer. Some objected on the grounds that they expected a cold and rude welcome from the white parishioners at Holy Redeemer. They thought it would be better just to remain at St. Benedict than endure the maltreatment they likely would receive when they went to Mass at Holy Redeemer. Bishop Waters was unmoved. On May 31st, he himself went to Holy Redeemer and either preached or was in choir at every Mass. He experienced firsthand the crowd outside the church, anywhere from 40 to 100 whites, many of whom were parishioners, who stood outside and jeered and mocked as he and the black parishioners entered. Many of those parishioners fell away from the faith after this, becoming Protestant of one sort or another. As did many black Catholics. Indeed. 
Many black Catholics involved at Holy Redeemer, as well as at later parishes, did not believe their concerns were sufficiently heeded and or they did not want to endure the ridicule and abuse that they knew to expect when they went to the white parish. One consistent complaint of the black Catholics was that whenever a merger was ordered, it was the black parish or institution that was closed and the black Catholics who were forced to go to the white parish or school. The mergers never went the other way. Now, it's likely that the facilities for the white parishes and institutions were larger, nicer, and better maintained, but if this is someone's church, those are small matters. A person's church is part of the family. It's part of the fabric of their life. Closing a parish is a painful and terrible thing, as we're seeing in our own day in many dioceses today. So the black Catholics had a real beef here, if only because the bishop never came to them to listen to them and discuss the situation. But Bishop Waters did take at least one big lesson from the Newton Grove experience. He no longer gave any parish a hard deadline to integrate. He did not soften his insistence that integration must happen. He just didn't issue a deadline like he'd done to Father Sullivan. In June of 1953, just a few weeks after the experience of Newton Grove, Waters issued yet another pastoral letter on racism, and this one was even more condemnatory of racism. In this one, he pointed out that white Catholics were a minority in the global Catholic Church. He quoted Christ, saying, A new commandment I give unto you, love one another as I have loved you. He listed racism as among the pernicious wiles of Satan— and he made it relevant to an audience of 1953, which would have had a lot of World War II veterans, saying, May the example of our American soldiers who died to stamp out a philosophy of the master race in a war with Hitler in Germany prevent us from following a similar course. And he threatened that if parishes did not merge and integrate on their own, he would immediately shutter all churches that had been set up specially for blacks. One problem for the bishop, however, was that this situation in Newton Grove was fairly unique. In no other place in the diocese were there two parishes, a white one and a black one, so close together. And every other place where a parish was established for blacks, it was because that area had a higher concentration of black Catholics and not many white Catholics. So while they weren't territorial parishes, they also weren't set up specifically to divide white and black Catholics within the same community. So, to be honest, this latest pastoral letter had little real impact. Blacks, who had long been attending white parishes, continued to do so, while black Catholics attending their longtime parishes in their own neck of the woods also continued to do so. The real impact, however, was more mental. A black Catholic woman named Doris Rice, a parishioner at Greensboro's Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal, said... My personal opinion is that Negro Catholics here are not anxious to move over into the white churches with our brother in there, but like to feel it is our right and privilege if we want to do so. And this was essentially how things stood as time went on. The bishop did not force any more black parishes to close and merge with white parishes. But schools and hospitals were another matter. In 1954, when the U.S. Supreme Court issued the landmark decision Brown v. Board of Education, which declared separate but equal schools to be unconstitutional, Bishop Waters took this as a sign that he should pursue in action the desegregation of the Catholic hospitals and schools of the diocese. He sent a letter to the four Catholic hospitals ordering them to open their facilities and services to Catholic blacks in any place 
where this was not already done, and to non-Catholic blacks as far as space and ability would permit. He also ordered the hospitals to drop race as a criterion in hiring decisions. If a physician or nurse was qualified, their race must not matter in their decision to hire. With schools, he took a less definite approach. First, he ordered all five Catholic high schools to accept all qualified students. This was interesting to implement because of the five, three were white and two were black. He didn't order any of the five closed, but ordered them all to accept all qualified students, regardless of race. Elementary schools, which were more usually attached to parishes, were encouraged to integrate, but they were to do so on a schedule agreed upon by the pastors of the various parishes affected. The integration of the high schools and elementary schools went off largely without incident, but the fact that the Catholic schools were integrated became a bit of a political issue in 1955. The state of North Carolina's public schools were still segregated at this point, a year after Brown v. Board of Education, and the state government had requested an unlimited amount of time to implement the directives of that decision. The Assistant Attorney General of the state, I. Beverly Lake, argued that segregated schools were just and were the only ones that would work. When it was pointed out that the Catholic schools were integrated and doing fine, Lake said that there were only a few Catholics, so it was too small a sample size to go by. And besides, more Catholic kids were in the public schools anyhow. The diocese couldn't let this pass. In an editorial, the diocesan newspaper reported that Lake didn't speak for all North Carolinians on the preference for segregated schools, and that there were nearly 5,000 Catholic students in the Catholic schools, while only 3,379 Catholics were in public schools. Bishop Waters would continue fighting for the end of segregation in all facets of life in North Carolina until his death in 1974. Through the rest of the 1950s, he would desegregate the chancery staff, and he would see the desegregation of the Knights of Columbus and the Catholic Daughters of North Carolina, among other Catholic institutions. In 1958, the diocese received its first black priest when Father Thomas Haddon was ordained in Rome for Raleigh, and the following year, 1959, Bishop Waters ordained Father Joseph Houts at Sacred Heart Cathedral. Father Haddon was assigned to Holy Redeemer in Newton Grove, and there's a little vignette that was a sign of the times. The first time Father Haddon was assigned to hear confessions, he overheard one white parishioner say to another, Do you know that N-word is in the confessional? The other man replied, beautifully, what difference does it make? He's a priest, ain't he? Perfect. The correct response. Absolutely. As time went on, the fight to formally desegregate aspects of Catholic life in North Carolina petered out, as there were no more formal barriers to full participation of people in all aspects of Catholic life in the diocese. But the fight to root the heresy of racism out of people's minds and hearts didn't end so easily. Sin is an ugly thing, and it drives otherwise reasonable people to do ugly things. It does indeed. Bishop Waters may have been heavy-handed and dictatorial in his approach to ending unjust segregation. He may have failed to listen and tried to understand and explain and gain buy-in before he acted. His actions may have had a negative impact on many who may otherwise have gotten on board. But his actions also undoubtedly forced many people of goodwill to examine their hearts and bend their minds to true justice and to see their brothers and sisters as fellow children of God. And that would include countless people whose stories we don't know because they just went about their lives living in a new harmony, learning new things from their fellow parishioners or classmates. In other words, they became more fully and simply Catholic. 
You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, Please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about Bishop Waters and the desegregation of North Carolina Catholics, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback, and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH 1513. I'm Noelle Crow, And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.